again, and welcome to the Hillco Global Smarter Perspective podcast series. I'm your host, Steve Katz. Today, we're speaking with Lee Howard, Senior Vice President at Hillco Stream Bank and IPv4.global, about the potential for corporations, universities, and other organizations to achieve needed liquidity during this time period by leveraging an often underutilized and misunderstood IP asset their IPv4 address blocks. Just as a little quick background, Hillco Stream Bank is one of the foremost authorities on intellectual property asset valuation and monetization, and IPv4 Global, which has revolutionized the way the companies buy and sell blocks of IPv4 assets, is the global leader in those transactions, representing clients from both the buy and sell side. With that said, welcome to the podcast, Lee. Oh, thanks. Thanks for having me, Steve. Absolutely. Well, it's great to have you on with us today. I'm sure that among our many listeners today, we have those from the IT world who may be very well familiarized with IPv4. And then we have others from the C-suite and elsewhere within the organizational structure who are probably somewhat less well-versed. So to get everybody on the same page, I'd like to start by asking you to provide a brief overview of what IPv4 is and how it's used today. So IPv4 is the internet protocol, IP. Like all protocols, it defines a vocabulary and a grammar for communications. In this case, how devices communicate with each other. So in the case of the internet protocol, the, the grammar includes a, an address that helps identify the endpoints. So those endpoints would be your cell phone and the website that you go to, your favorite site. These are uh, kind of the numbers that go behind the names. So where we're used to seeing a name like hillcoglobal.com, the numbers would be behind that, something like 192.0.2.25. So there's, it's because computers like numbers where, where humans like to have words. So these are identifiers that both help locate and identify the specific devices that are communicating with each other. To be, and to be clear, it's IPv4. The, uh, the earliest versions were part of defense contracts about 50 years ago were the first versions that were being proposed. And versions one through four, IP versions one through, well, actually one through three, never actually made it out of the lab. They're just sort of on paper or somebody tried to program them. And, uh, we can we can do better than this. IPv4 was really the version that made it big, made the internet that we know. Okay, great. So to follow up on that, when these IPv4 blocks were doled out all those many years ago, how were recipients chosen? I know you mentioned DOD, but you know more specifically, who, who were the recipients? Who bore the cost associated with those tens of thousands of addresses? And did ARPA or anybody for that matter ever envisioned that capacity would one day be maxed out. Remember that 40, 50 years ago, a computer was <laughs> was this complex system that, that took up an entire room. You had people attending to it. It was enormously expensive. So the only places that had computers were places that were uh, that needed them to do research. Generally, it was, it was particle physics or as accelerators or, or big research projects, which tended to be the kinds of things either R1 research universities or large government contractors, maybe the government itself, who had needs to be able to, they wanted, these researchers who wanted to be able to have those computers exchange data. So they needed a way for them to be able to reach each other. So that's what the internet was designed for, kind of during the Cold War. So those systems were designed to be able to connect to each other, but not have to, not, they didn't want to have every single computer have to connect to every other computer. So they also needed to be able to forward for each other. And that also provided an important resilience in case, you know, Cold War, in case something bad happened, there was still some, some fault tolerance in case one location, one computer was unavailable. The, the system could reroute. 
So that's how they created the, the addressing system to allow that kind of dynamic routing. What really happened then was the original system was they wanted to get the first couple of digits. This the first couple of binary digits would tell the computer which way to send the information, whether it was local or if it was going on to the next university or the next research lab or whatever. But because of that design, those were terribly inefficient. So these, again, they just, these were just numbers. They didn't cost anything, but they could only give them out in blocks of 256 or 65,000 or 16 million, which sound like arbitrary sizes, but trust me, they're round numbers in binary. So it was, it was terribly inefficient. If it sounded like a system was going to need more than a few addresses, then they'd go ahead and get 65,000. And that's kind of where it came from. The, the entertaining part, sort of story-wise, is that the initial allocations were made by a contractor at, I believe it was the University of Southern California, who had a spiral-bound notebook. John Pastel was writing down, oh, okay, so USC is now using these IP addresses, and MIT now has these IP addresses. And that was how they recorded those back in the day. Eventually, it didn't take him a long time to figure out that he was not going to be able to keep up with the growth of the internet. And nobody, of course, predicted when there were only 50 computers in the world, nobody expected that there would someday be billions. Right, of course. You could never you could never really have predicted that. Right. Um Unless you had the crystal ball, which we all wish we had. <laughs> okay, so again, let me just make sure I've got it right. So because IPv4 blocks were allocated to these large corporations and institutions without any cost, they in turn never really carried them as assets on their books. Uh, and as a result of that, the blocks are typically not looked at when a company goes through an exercise, I would imagine, to determine which assets that it has the potential to monetize at a given point in time. Is is that the situation? Oh, yeah, exactly right, Steve. They were originally free, just like phone numbers. So nobody ever thought it until somebody branded a phone number. Nobody ever thought that a number could have, that you could exchange numbers for dollars. It's like it's, it's like selling somebody the number five. It doesn't make any sense. Until about 30 years ago, they started to figure out. You know, then, the, then the crystal balls started clearing up a little bit and people realized, oh, this internet thing might just take off. We're going to run out if we keep allocating like this. So they came up with some schemes to allow more efficient numbering. And then about 10 years ago, we started really getting tight and running out because even the efficiencies, while they bought us a lot of time, probably bought us 20 years, they were beginning to run out. And then we, I guess the internet community realized we need to find a way to motivate people to make these addresses available. So if there are people who have more addresses than they need, and people who need more addresses than they have because they're just growing networks, how do we how do we line those people up and, and get those addresses back into circulation? So the communities sort of got together and said, well, even though the addresses are free at some point, if 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 somebody needs addresses, I guess there's no technical problem with them offering money to somebody who has addresses. And that provides the motivation for people to go and do that research and find out that they have these things that are potentially worth money. Uh, that's kind of where this market all began. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. So it isn't really a situation right now then where all of the allocated IPv4 addresses have been assigned by organizations' IT department over time, right? Some percentage of those have likely been assigned, and as you were explaining to me just prior to the podcast, having a solid understanding of that number as well as the sequence in which they were assigned is critical when undertaking an effort to monetize the IPv4 addresses as an asset. Do I, do yeah. I have that right? Yeah, right. Typically, an organization that has 65,000 addresses, what was a Class B block 30 years ago, 
typically they've been allocating them just like phone extensions it's the, you know, for the same IT team. They have yeah. to track who has which, but but they don't necessarily know. They don't necessarily have to keep them uh, terribly efficient. So even if there are only 500 people in the company, they may still have the other 65,000 are available. Or what I often see is the, the company says, okay, we'll just allocate a, lar- a, a largest block over here for this branch office, another one for this branch office, another one for that branch office, because then we can just remember the addresses in case we do some troubleshooting. It makes it easy for the, for the engineers, for the, the IT folks, but it's not necessarily efficient. And so you know, we, we've seen places where they're 90% inefficiency. It's not necessarily about the sequence that they're assigned in as how efficiently, how much they've thought about how efficiently to, to assign them. Or kind of to your point, when, when one company buys another, because it wasn't an asset on the balance sheet when the, when the company was acquired, nobody considered it as part of the, the assets of, of that acquisition. If that network is then integrated with the buying company, there may be this block that's worth almost $2 million lying around that nobody's using because nobody knew that to even record it as an asset. I will admit, when we go back to the IT manager and say, how have you been tracking this? How, have you, how has your team been assigning this? And let's, let's be honest, there's some work there. It's not that it's hard work, but it's, okay, so you want me to go in and look at every one of my servers and do a little poll and all of the workstations that I have and get in and look at my DNS systems for, uh, for all the stuff in my data center. It's just, it requires a little bit of, of diligence. And what they really don't want to do is have to renumber. Uh, that's sort of where we get into, let's compare what's the value versus the, the effort required. Yeah. Wow. Very interesting. So since the light bulb, I'm going to guess, may be now going on for some of our listeners uh, based on what you just said um, and their lack of familiarity with IPv4 addresses in general, what advice would you offer those in the C-suite or at the helm of these companies, organizations, and universities if they're finding themselves in a position right now where obtaining liquidity from underutilized assets is either essential or would be highly beneficial. So for example, in making it possible to undertake prioritized projects, capital improvements, or move forward with efforts like critical new hires or acquisitions, what, what kind of suggestions would you provide to them and how to move forward? There's so much I could say here. Uh, one thing is that I sort of hinted at it a minute ago, like the, the headaches for the IT manager. I've found a few times that I've talked to a CFO or a CEO and say, you have this asset. It's worth its money. And they say, well, this sounds very interesting. Let me go talk to my CIO. And they ask the question, do we have addresses available to sell? And the CIO says, uh, no. Well, okay. Maybe they don't. Maybe they don't have any available to sell right now, but they could with a little bit of effort. So I'm starting to encourage people to say, when you go ask, the real question is, what would it take to make some addresses available for sale? And by the way, you don't have to sell the entire block. Right? It's one of the unique things about IPv4.global and the stream bank is that we can we can sell off small fractions of the blocks. So just make a few bits available and, and we can monetize parts of that too. So what we tell people is to find out, figure out what it would take. What does it cost? If, if the CIO says, oh no, that would cost $100,000 to renumber that network. But we're talking about making a million dollars. Okay, well, that, that's you know, that, that's probably worthwhile worth doing. We also, as we we're talking about, you, you mentioned, I guess, universities and different kinds of institutions. One of the things that's useful is to be able to go in to say, what's what would we use this money for if we had it? Because sometimes that you do, actually, I suppose, most of the time, what you're going to use it for is more important. It's, it's it's often more directly related to the organization's mission, whether it's applied towards scholarships or or salaries, or as you said, capital improvements. From time to time, somebody will say, let's, you know, we'd really like to 
you know, move to the cloud or buy a new facility or, or whatever the, the thing is. And we've even on occasion been able to find a little, a little coverage financing. We know the addresses are going to come in and we, we can help out there. We can get pretty creative because you know, when you're talking about these kinds of the most intangible asset I can think of, it's an integer of when it's that intangible, being able to, to find some creative ways to, to leverage value out of it for an organization is uh, it, it's actually really interesting and exciting for me. Yeah, I'm I'm picking that up from from your enthusiasm <laughs> in describing this, and it is it is really interesting. So the so the real question to ask is not do we have them. The question is what would it cost or what would it take to make them What's available? The because it kind of ma- it, it makes the IT department really think think about it, and they they probably have they possess the knowledge that's necessary to be able to to move that- forward. Yeah. That's exactly it. And maybe they say, oh, we have, it's, we, we can get rid of it. We can do this right now. Maybe they need a consultation or maybe they, they say, all right, well, let's, let's buckle down and do it. And there's work involved. And again, the kind of dollars that are sometimes involved here, it may make sense to bring in some outside support as staff augmentation to, to help out with that renumbering. And that's okay. You know, this, I don't think this market's going away anytime soon. I think there's, yeah, it's, it's worth spending yeah. some time on. Right. Sure seems like it. Well, listen, you've done a great job of uh, making the case for senior leadership to become more well-informed regarding the status of uh, these hidden assets within the organizations, particularly, I would say, during the ongoing COVID-19 period where businesses of all types, as we're seeing, are in pursuit of added liquidity for any number of reasons. So senior leaders, if you'd like to learn more about the potential to leverage these hidden assets that very likely could exist within your organization. I encourage you to reach out to Lee and the Hillco Stream Pink IPv4 Global team for a conversation. With that in mind, Lee's email is lhoward at hillcoglobal.com. That's L like leverage, H-O-W-A-R-D at hillcoglobal.com. Lee, listen, it was a pleasure having you on, and uh, I really did appreciate your enthusiasm today. That's been great, Steve. I I love to talk about this. So thank you very much. Thank you. And listeners, we hope that today's Hilco Global Smarter Perspective podcast provided you with at least one key takeaway that you can put to good use in your business or share with a colleague or client to help make them that much more successful moving forward. Until next time, for Hilco Global, I'm Steve Katz.